Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hi. What's up, y'all? This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Damon. I am Kiss. And we are here with an exciting bonus episode for y'all. We've been taking a little season of rest and break, but the work don't stop. And so in this moment of rest, was fortunate to be able to be a part of a, an event that was put together by the League of Revolutionaries for a New America. I was connected to him through friend of like the community and, and listener of the show, Adam Gottlieb, poet and organizer based here in Chicago with this group that is rooted mostly in Oakland and in the, the Bay Area in California. Uh, so a few months ago, was invited to be a part of an event uh, where I was able to talk about, you know, divest, invest, defund, and abolition, but was really grateful to be able to do it in an explicitly revolutionary context. And one of the things I talked about in trying to teach people about abolition is that there are three folks who you should just learn everything they've said. And those folks are Angela Davis, Miriam Kaba, and Ruthie Wilson Gilmore. And so I was excited to learn that their next event actually featured Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, and they were gracious enough to invite me back to be in conversation with her. Uh, and so in partnership with Lerna, as, as they call it, we are here republishing uh, the audio from the event, Defund, Abolish, Reconstruct, with Ruthie Wilson Gilmore that took place July 17th. So I was fortunate to be uh, one of the two people in conversation with her, the other moderator, uh, was a woman by the name of Jerry Silva, who you should also Google and look up and we, we'll reach out to as well, um, who's another phenomenal organizer from California. Um, it was dope, Kiss. I, I really was excited to be able to finally meet Ruthie uh, in person. I feel like I had known her. I've been so connected to her. It's much less me than anybody else. There, there was a lot of space for her to just like kind of cook and, and, and get into her bag, which is really a, a privilege. She's one of the, you know, most amazing living thinkers, period, that, that I have ever engaged. So her brilliance was on full display. And we're excited to share that brilliance with you all today. Here from July 17th, Damon and Jerry Silva in conversation with Ruthie Wilson Gilmore. Let's get it. It is my distinct honor to introduce my friend, above all, world-renowned scholar, activist, and abolitionist in every sense of the word, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. She teaches geography at the City University of New York, where she is also the director of Center for Peace, Culture, and Politics. She's the author of award-winning Golden Gulag, Prison Surplus Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California. Her forthcoming books include Change Everything, Haymarket, and Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation, Verso. She co-edited with Paul Gilroy, Stuart Hall, Selected Writings 
on race and difference, Duke. The documentary, Geographies of Racial Capitalism with Ruth Wilson Gilmore features her internationalist analysis. She has co-founded many grassroots organizations, including California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance, and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. She's a California girl. Her honors include the 2020 Lannan Foundation Cultural Freedom Prize with Mike Davis and Angela Y. Davis, and was elected in 2021 to the Academy, American Academy of Arts and Sciences. This is a major accomplishment. Welcome, Ruthie. Thank you, Jerry. Jerry, your your picture has disappeared from my view. Can oh, someone look at your camera? Yeah. There you are. There. Everybody else. Okay. Know if it was personal or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Jerry Silva. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Thank you for being my sister and my comrade over all these years. We met around 30 years ago, oh, at least. give or take a few, a few months or a few years. Um, Mike Davis might have introduced us, I'm not sure, but he, he is the first person who told me about you. And I said, oh, who's that? <laughs> Let me go find out. <laughs> and we did a lot together and we do a lot together even though we are separated um, by time and space, we are joined in mind and heart, and especially in consciousness in the work that we do. Absolutely. All right, let me get to the questions, Ms. Gilmore. Okay. In your new book, Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition, when you say change everything, what does that mean? What does everything encompass? Everything, <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything. Now, I don't know how many of the 150, 160 people who have joined us today are worried about the idea of changing everything. But I assure you that many, many, many people imagine what that means is destroy everything, burn it to the ground. Once you have scorched the earth, sprinkle the earth with salt plow the salt into the earth so that nothing can flourish for seven years, then hope to start again. Well, that would be pretty foolish. So let's go back to that word change. Change everything means take things as they are and configure them anew to make what we need out of what we have. Now, you and um, Kimberly King have already indicated how that could be. I know that the work that Damon Williams and his comrades are doing also indicates how that could be. So I'm gonna talk about this a little bit, giving examples. Um, one of the most famous cop fighters in Los Angeles history was the late great Black Panther, Michael Zinzen. And Michael Zinzen was, because he was a Panther, trying then in the 1960s and 70s and beyond, as we are trying now to compel cops to stop killing people, 
stop killing poor people, stop killing black people, stop killing working class people, regardless of race or ethnicity or citizenship status. That's what Zinjin was doing. And as Kimberly King reminds us, these killings haven't stopped over time. So Michael Zinzin, quite uh, remarkably, in the annals of bringing cops to account in any way, managed successfully to convict a judge and I guess a jury in the city of Pasadena that he had lost the sight in one of his eyes because of a brutal attack by one of their police. And he was paid, uh, let's call it reparation. It wouldn't repair his eye, but he got a, a money um, award. Michael Zinson used that money to establish the Coalition Against Police Abuse, an organization that he ran with very little help for many, many years, headquartered in South Central Los Angeles, where the people doing that work would do outreach to community, but also have an open door so that if somebody from the community, wherever they were and whoever they were, had had a problem with police, they could come to the door, express what had happened, and at least build up a record of the struggles people had with police harming and uh, killing their loved ones, invading their homes, destroying their um, self-earned property. Michael Zinzen thought a lot. He had a big head full of thought. And one of the conclusions he reached was, while it is true that police kill us, while it is true that we must continue on this campaign to stop that, it is also true that other things kill us and we can do things about that as well. Other things kill us and we can do things about that as well. And he became particularly concerned about the fact that so many children in working class communities, especially but not exclusively children who live in public housing, for our international guests, that would be called social housing in many places, that kid, those kids were suffering from asthma and they were dying of it. And asthma should not kill anybody. It's an actually relatively easily treatable if chronic condition, but it has to be treated. And part of the treatment requires that the environment in which the person suffering from restricted airway disease, asthma lives, has got to be free of certain kinds of harmful um, toxins. Michael Zinzen uh, learned, as many other people learned in various places around the world, that one of the things that exacerbates childhood asthma is the stuff that gets into the air from the feces from vermin, from rodents and roaches. And for those of you who didn't know that roaches also produce feces, look under your sink, you will see. <laughs> Michael Zinson then embarked on a campaign to do two things, one of which was to uh, alert people living in housing that were infested with vermin that one of the 
um, key contributing factors to their child, children's um, ill health was this vermin, but also to realize that the chemical pesticides available in the grocery store to kill the vermin actually make the asthma worse, actually make the asthma worse. So spraying you know what under the sink does not solve the problem of uh, vulnerability to premature death. So Zinzin did this work in Los Angeles. He also had quite an international profile, um, especially in the last 10 or 12 years of his life, and did some organizing with people in favelas in uh, Brazil, uh, did some organizing in uh, Cuba and elsewhere. Now, at almost the same time that um, the late Michael Zinzin was developing this knowledge that he immediately, immediately turned into a campaign, there were right across Los Angeles, the thickly um, inhabited vastness of Los Angeles, right across on the east, northeast part of Los Angeles in the um, uh, unincorporated Los Angeles Valley, uh, excuse me, unincorporated Los Angeles County, the mothers of East LA had kind of come to the same conclusion. And they had gotten to that conclusion by a different but very closely related path. In the early 1980s, the state of California had announced that it was going to build a jillion new prisons. And the first one would be built in East LA because according to the then governor and the people in charge in Sacramento, in the state capital, the prison should be built in the communities where the prisoners will come from. And these mothers said, so why do these people up there in Sacramento assume that our kids are going to prison? Because obviously a prison that's not built yet is being built for some future generation of prisoners. So why, did, why are they assuming our kids are going to prison? So first the mothers organized and they stopped that prison. It was the last prison stopped until a huge and long struggle stopped the state from building any new prisons at all in the 21st century. But they also, the mothers asked themselves, well, what is it about our kids other than the easy answer, racism, compels these people in Sacramento to decide that Mexican-American children will go to prison. There've gotta be things other, in addition to that, that explains the racism, that shows us the racism, because they don't write the laws saying, let's go arrest all the black and Mexican-American kids and put them in prison. So what do they do? What the mothers did was they learned, for example, that many people who wind up in prison have lost time in school, and they lost time in school because many of them were sick a lot. And what were a lot of people sick from who missed school, especially elementary and middle and, and high school? Childhood asthma. So we get to the same problem by a different pathway, but it's still the pathway from organized violence of police and prisons to organized abandonment of the conditions under which people live their everyday lives. So 
having started there, you know, so intensely in Los Angeles, I'd like to stretch out a little bit and point out that today we know throughout the U.S. and also far, far beyond U.S. borders, COVID is rampant inside prisons and jails. And people who are, have uh, no way to socially distance, to get vaccines, et cetera, are uh, facing uh, ever more premature death than before. We also know that um, uh, in many rural areas, uh, whether or not in the United States, people who work in or near agricultural um, fields are exposed also to pesticides and the toxins that produce childhood asthma that results in, in some places, one in four children having childhood asthma, and as I said earlier, dying of it, even though it should not be fatal. So we've got urban-rural, questions of the environment, questions of abandonment, questions of housing, and an international stretch, a stretch from um, self-identified men who fight cops, self-identified mothers who fight prisons, and everybody and everything in between. Now, I'd like to point out at this moment that in the United States, at the second that we're talking, half of the entire labor force, it's like 75 or 80 million people, minimum, half of the entire labor force is in one way or another not documented to work. In fact, most of them are documented not to work because of a disqualifying arrest or conviction, regardless of what their citizenship status is. They have been documented not to work. So a fairly small fraction of that huge number are themselves uh, the, the formal group or informal group of undocumented workers in the United States. Most, regardless of their citizenship status, green card status, are documented not to work because of an arrest or a conviction record. Now, we also know that in the early months of COVID, so a year and five months ago, first, the US stock, stock market went, right? It went down and many people thought, oh, here's the opportunity for everybody to understand that workers produce value because look what happened. When everyone was told to stay home, the stock market went down. It turns out we're the ones who produce value. Well, in some places, it remained down. In the US, it went back up. Went back up while everybody, everybody, which is to say people who did not fit the profile of um, uh, essential workers, we'll talk about a little later, um, while everybody uh, who was told to stay home stayed home, the stock market went back up. Now, why was that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first is the U.S. stock market, as huge as it is, 
chock full of the old blue chip companies like the automobile companies and steel companies and oil companies and so forth, and chock full of the new hot companies, newer, like um, uh, Apple and Microsoft and so on and so forth. That market as a whole was dragged up, i.e. investors put their money back in, was dragged up, one, because of the tech companies that all seemed likely not only to endure the downturn well, but all seemed likely as well to benefit from the downturn by connecting people remotely, by making remote work possible, by connecting the world for Amazon and so forth. So those tech companies include Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Zoom was a new entrant, so forth. The other reason though, that the stock market went back up, and this is absolutely important, is that unusually for the overdeveloped um, economies of the world, the US um, allows employers to fire employees at will. Now, everyone who's in the US, US probably thinks, Gilmore, what are you talking about? Of course, an employer can fire an employee. Not everywhere, comrades, in the US. Therefore, again, investors, wherever they were, whoever they were, and that includes pension funds for people like me and Kimberly, who are uh, teachers, investors knew that firms, whether they are tech firms or other kinds of firms, could reduce their costs and return to profitability because they could lay off as many workers as they needed to and not hire them back until they wanted to, right? So this is what happened with the stock market. These things were entirely predictable, entirely predictable. And if we go back, we will find that any number of people um, in both, uh, uh, you know, engaged, very public facing uh, lectures and scholarship, as well as in more, um, uh, academic or technical sounding writing all said the same thing, that these are the things that would happen. And the people who didn't, of course, stay home were the essential workers like healthcare, delivery, food production, um, and, and so forth. So I have a couple more things I want to say about the everything, and then we'll go on to the next question. All right. So let's talk for a moment about agribusiness and food. And I, I mentioned the fact that in rural parts of the world, all kinds of people are exposed to many of the chemical inputs that make certain kinds of uh, crops grow, um, but that destroy while also enhancing um, commodity value, right? So destroy earth, destroy workers, destroy air, destroy soil, and destroy water. Um, agribusiness, which kind of is one of the uh, forms of multinational capital that kind of has the world in, as it were, in its grips, um, uh, relies on the labor of, at minimum, 1.1 billion workers. 
Mm. So I mentioned 75 or 80 million workers in the U.S. who are documented not to work. Now we're getting a little bigger. 1.1, minimally, 1.1 billion people participate in uh, agricultural activity. And there's additional people who make the machines, fix the machines, and so forth. So we're talking about people who have something to do with what happens in the fields or in the sea, you know, with uh, fish and seafood. And the five big, well, there's six now, big agribusiness firms that are so incredibly powerful, like Archer Midland Daniels and Cargill and Bungie. Uh, there's a new entrant that's um, uh, got a mix of Chinese state capital and private capital that's coming out of China called Kofco, a couple others. They are relying on all of those workers, most of whom are organized at ground level in very small producer groups. So we have small production leading up to these vast global networks of agribusiness, which then gives us some idea of part of the everything that we could change that we can already see might be changeable. And I'll come back again later in our time together and talk about that in a little bit of detail. The agribusiness um, firms also are doing something that might surprise people who um, uh, concluded that the current phase of global capitalism that we're living through is one completely dominated by banks and financial institutions. The surprise is they're setting up their own cryptocurrency capacity, knocking the banks out of the picture so that they can compel their suppliers up and down the chain to participate uh, without the middleman or middle person um, in transferring value up and down. The cryptocurrency um, capacity, so cryptocurrency, for those of you who know, things like Bitcoin, and I don't understand how it works, but I know that it does work. The cryptocurrency capacity might well have knocked banks out of the picture, but they demand the equivalent amount of electricity on an annual basis as the entire country of Argentina uses for all purposes on an annual basis, or the entire country of Switzerland uses for all purposes on an annual basis, or the entire country of, it's pretty close, Denmark. So these are you know, pretty well-to-do countries that I'm talking about. They use a lot of electricity for a lot of reasons, for production, reproduction, household, so forth. And the cryptocurrency from these small firms use that much electricity, which gives us, again, some idea of the enormity of capacity, but also the enormity of possibility in things that we can do. And the last point I want to make at this, this point, part of our, our, of our conversation, is to talk a little as well, having raised healthcare and raised healthcare workers as essential workers, um, about the kinds of things that are happening in the U.S. and beyond um, with healthcare workers um, on their own behalf. 
So I've had the opportunity to talk with the National uh, National Nurses United and uh, uh, speak with um, the, some of their political education people within that union, but also speak to the entire union at um, during their annual conference last September and do some other things and talk a bit about the things we're talking about today. And to get a sense of the ways that um, in particular healthcare workers and especially but not exclusively nurses see every aspect of the contradictions that I'm talking about, whether or not they're concerned about them, they see them because they're all in their faces. They work for massive multinationals like Health uh, Hospital Corporation of America, massive corporations. They are compelled by their employer not to organize for one big union that can stand up to the entire firm, but locals. Right. So divide and conquer, divide and conquer, divide and conquer. They um, tend to have a fairly high representation of long distance migrants, people who have moved from one country to another, whether they plan to return to um, some point of origin or some intermediary point or intend to stay where they're at should make no difference. They have moved. Many are responsible for sending remittances home in order to um, enhance the economic well-being of their households and communities. So some people probably know that uh, the Philippines has at at Manila, its, its major airport, has special exit gates for people who work in healthcare and domestic labor who are long distance migrants. They have their own exit gates. And if you go some other places in uh, the world, you will see that there are special entry gates for people like the people coming from the Philippines or Eritrea, Sierra Leone or Nigeria to come in and have their passports stamped so they can get to work quickly and not have to wait in lines. So we have a a sense of a global consciousness on the part of people who are organizing, um, organizing themselves for their locals, but also organizing their national union, which is the biggest healthcare workers union in the United States, as well as organizing um, a group called Global Nurses United, which now has Uh, chapters and presences in many places, including in Brazil. So um, some of these examples that I have just um, shared with you, starting with Michael Zinzin and ending, uh, who had a presence in Brazil and ending with the National Nurses United, who also now have a presence in Brazil, give us some sense of what I mean when I say everything. I really do mean everything. And it's everything that we can look at, think about, understand, and find people already doing things about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to make a little bit of time for it to open up. And, uh, you know, in that answer, I think you spoke to it, but to talk about your vision of what abolitionist future looks like. But before that, I'm, I am just compelled to offer love and honor to both 
you, Ruthie and Jerry, on behalf of Chicago Movement here, organizations such as Let Us Breathe Collective, the Black Abolitionist Network, the R3 Coalition. Um, there's a deep tie and everybody watching. There's a deep tie between Chicago and California. Uh, so I'm honored to be here and to be a part of this conversation. And I think that connection is really important. And so much of this legacy has changed not only my life, but my whole community's life. There's so many people that know each other and are deeply rooted in continuing the legacies of so many of the things that y'all have contributed to and built. So just one deep love, honor and appreciation. And thank you, Kimberly, for, for having me. Um, but in talking about, you know, making space from all those things we need to change, uh, really would love to hear about your, your, your vision and what do, do these abolitionist geographies look like? If I may, you know, take on the mantle of both Marx and Touré here, I didn't invent abolition, right? But I do think that I observe it. And the only reason I observe it is not because I'm like this individual genius any more than as Kwame Touré was trying to say of Marx, that Marx was like, you know, sitting in the British library by himself with his books, thinking, what is the world and how can I write people out of it? What I see and why I have, um, you know, come to the conclusion, which is to say the starting point that abolition is presence, which, by the way, Damon, I first said in Chicago. Hey. I first, I first <laughs> said those words in Chicago. <laughs> Squad. Of course. <laughs> 2017. <laughs> um, is... I thought very hard about what, for example, Du Bois was talking about in Black Reconstruction in America. Like, why did he write all those pages, man? Why all those pages? Why is like chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter? It's a long book. And it's one that I think everybody should read, but it's a long book. And it's a long book in which, as he says at the end, um, that the standard histories of reconstruction, uh, uh, which were themselves very long books, were bad. He said, the historians said so much because they saw so little. They said so much because they saw so little. Now, Du Bois was not then encouraged to write a short book, but rather to write a long book so he could show us what he saw that all those other historians in his view had missed. And for people who are listening in, you might know that Du Bois was from Western Massachusetts. He went to Harvard of all schools um, where he studied history. Then he went off to Berlin to Humboldt University and studied sociology. And so he had this kind of interdisciplinary take on things. But the whole time that he was studying these things and going these places and trying to understand the world, he had a commitment to changing it so that long before writing um, Black Reconstruction in America, Du Bois had already concluded one must be a socialist to undo this mess we're in like long before and before the Great Depression and all that, like long, long, long before. So Du Bois shows us in Black Reconstruction the kinds of things that people did. And it was 
in reflecting again on that and on having read so many works from the uh, 18th and 19th century written by abolitionists, including uh, people who had been enslaved, people who had passed through um, as sailors and so on and so forth, we see the same thing. The people make lives. And what abolition is, is making those lives and having them flourish rather than having the absence of a legal category set out into the world. So abolition then is presence in that people in reconstruction, during reconstruction in the United States were making all kinds of things, public education, uh, community well-being. Um, one of the footnotes in that book is one that I like to show off because I can quote from memory. He's, uh, du Bois writes, the experience of the Negro worker during Reconstruction provides the researcher with the opportunity to study inductively the Marxian theory of the state. And I know we're going to talk about the theory of the state later, but there I'm going to put that out. That that Du Bois kept seeing these things and it's the presence of making that world, which itself got slapped during the next period, which was redemption. But people really made that. And a lot of that knowledge and capacity and imagination and vision has persisted into where we are. So you said, Damon, about what, you know, we elders may have um, done that has shaped what younger people do. And we ourselves are shaped by the past, people who were elders to us and elders to them and so on and so forth. So we're carrying it through. We're not going back to before, but we're pulling through the kind of genius that we are all capable of realizing. A couple of other examples. we're going back to Brazil again because I like to think about Brazil and Brazil is going through such a hard time and yet on the ground, there are amazing things happening. The uh, Landless Workers Movement, the MST, uh, shows us how abolition is presence in all of the things that the MST does. Land occupations, agricultural work, establishment of schools, a central training um, Uh, school uh, for theory as well as practice. And the fact that people, teams will go from the MST anywhere in the world to help people develop their capacities um, for agriculture, for community, for schools and so forth, anywhere in the world. And so they have very close relations with people in, in Indonesia and with people who, are, who live in the self-built communities on land occupations in South Africa and Durban and, and Cape Town and so forth. They share tech, technological techniques and they share seeds, all of the above. And so the, right now in the year 2021, the MST is Latin America's biggest producer of organic rice. Biggest producer of organic rice. And they slide that rice past the blockades into Venezuela, 
past the blockades, I imagine also into an island 90 miles off the US coast and as well as elsewhere. So that is abolitionist presence. So it need not be that the MST say we're abolitionists for me to see abolition, just as it need not have been for anybody who Marx trained his attention on to say we are communists for him to see communism, right? It's like this is kind of analytical as well as a sense of what the historical personality and purpose of the work is. Mother's Rock was abolitionist. And it, I mean, back when people said, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was. Um, and then I'll give one other brief um, example. I have, I have two more. Well, let's see how we're doing with time. Um, the, in India today, another place that's stuck suffering a lot because the central government has been uh, seized by fascists. Um, that fact uh, put the entire vast country at peril uh, in the context of COVID. Uh, and yet, because of the diversity of the country, of political formations, of the fact that communists and other um, people for whom the needs of the people come first have uh, a rather uh, uh, important presence, uh, the outcome of COVID uh, vulnerability in India has not been evenly experienced in all of the areas of the country. So, for example, in Kerala, which is southwest India, on the Indian Ocean, uh, that state developed a development plan for itself decades ago that was development, not growth. Development, not growth. The purpose was to figure out how it could be possible for the 30 million or so people who are resident in that state to flourish. Now, it's not a place without its contradictions. Of course, it has them. And many people from Kerala are long distance migrants to other parts of India and more frequently across the Gulf into the Gulf states, the oil states. But one of the things that Kerala committed to do for itself, for the people, was to develop the capacity to make oxygen in case it could, would be needed. As a result, the, uh, uh, during the terrible periods of COVID in India, which are probably have not come to the end, to an end as they have not elsewhere, Kerala had the capacity to make oxygen so that people in Kerala could use it and then they could also ship it out to nearby areas. Now, completely different kind of organization, the Sikh communities that are more um, centered in the North, in the states that surround Delhi, which is the capital of India, so Uttar Pradesh, Haryana, and so forth, the Sikh communities, with a different uh, kind of social organization that's based very much in their faith community centers, also develop the capacity to make oxygen. So two of the principal suppliers 
of oxygen for those in need have been Sikhs who give it out to people who need it. Um, in other words, they're not selling it, they're giving it. And, and the Kerala Communist Socialist Government. So this also shows me abolition, right? It also shows me. Um, so why don't we move on because I'll talk all day. <laughs> Which isn't a bad thing at all. Yeah, we love it. Um, <laughs> You know, Ruthie, I'm reminded as you're speaking, when I had interviewed you and Craig on my now, uh, what, what would I call it, not radio show, Think Outside the Cage, and we were talking about abolition, and I was talking about people's opposition to the word, and um, Craig said, uh, people are doing abolition work all the time, and this is what you're talking about now. And I think that's so important. It's one doesn't have to claim to be, it's just happening. Uh, but I wanted to also, you know, people, people are working, but we also have a laborless economy. Millions and millions of people have been made permanently surplus. Uh, electronics has taken, so, I, I mean, we industry has been gone. But electronics has taken the place of workers. Um, and, and how does this surplus population uh, survive in this new economy? The League has written about the growth of an abolitionist class that must abolish private property to survive. And, you know, we're seeing so much activity and movement building around the world. You've talked about it. So exciting to hear about it. People are fighting for their basic needs to stay alive, including coming together of these movements. And I'm seeing this in Los Angeles. It's very exciting. But to me, the rub comes with making the, league, the leap then to, to class consciousness and understanding that the realization of our ba basic needs will not be met under capitalism or a better governor or a better any of the betters that are, you know, representative of capitalism. So, you know, from your huge vantage point, how are you seeing the development of class consciousness within these movements? Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's a great question. And I think I'm, my inclination is almost to continue saying what I was uh, talking about in, in response to Damon's question, that as people, um, uh, develop the relationships and the practices and the skills and the sharing and the solidarity that is uh, characterized, you know, at the most intimate scale by the kinds of mutual aid groupings that not only rose up in the last year and a half because of COVID, but have characterized the lived experience of uh, vulnerable people all over the planet all the time in the, the last 500 years, you know, whether they're saving societies, burial societies, so on and so forth. All of, all of these, um, these formations give a glimpse into how people um, can see themselves and do see themselves through to, a, to the other side from imagining that, as you put it, uh, 
a nicer corporation will do the trick or um, a different governor will finally set everybody free. I mean, we just had a big change in president in the United States and policing is about to get worse, which we all knew, like it was entirely predictable, entirely predictable. And here we are, here we are. And that's why I was OMGing about Chicago because I read the report of the Chicago police chief going to meet with the attorney general and coming back with his action plan. All right. <clears throat> so what it is, it is true, as you say, that people are fighting for survival. But the thing that I find the most um, inspiring is the fact that you already know, Jerry, and you already know Damon, and probably the whole organizing committee of this um, fantastic group already knows is that nobody actually fights just for survival. People actually have a sense of life that we want to live. It's got aesthetic dimensions. It's got pleasurable dimensions. It's got different kinds of food, you name it. We know this is true for people who are locked up. We know this is true for people who are in the free world. We know it's true for people who, as I was talking about earlier, um, who've been uh, pushed and pulled from places where they used to live, whatever they were like, and who have wound up in the rapidly expanding uh, urban megacities of mostly the global south. And a good deal of the newer parts of those cities are parts that were built by the people who live there. They established houses, established schools, established entire communities, established forms of government. Um, I just read a really fam fantastic book about that called Amakomiti um, in uh, South Africa. Uh, and the... In the context of the things that people do, we see arising, again, I'm just repeating myself, um, relationships to one another and to the land that do not involve in any way alienating the land, turning land into a commodity that can be sold, that do not involve prioritizing, turning energy into money that then somebody can take the most of and yet are stuck with the realization that so much of everyday life requires some form of money because so much of everyday life has become monetized, right? If you can't grow it, you have to buy it. If you can't get to your job on your motorbike without having some fuel, you've got to buy the fuel. You know, there's one thing after another, after another. So there are people who have developed, for example, entire really elaborate systems to get around the need to have money to buy things that maybe they can make. Now, one would, might think, oh, well, Gilmore, you're talking about food, you know, 
dishes or something like that. No, I'm talking about people who know how to wield um, uh, tools that can make uh, from scrap metal uh, parts to repair uh, cars and parts to do all kinds of things. So I, I met some people, for example, in Marrakesh last year or two years, I don't remember when it was, before the, before the pandemic, um, who had developed a project where all kinds of skilled workers who live in Marrakesh, who know how to do various parts of metal and other work, could get together and build their own motorbikes so they wouldn't have to import them from somewhere else. I mean, this is just another example. So everything that we do is susceptible to being snatched by capitalism and turned into a commodity to be sold back to us. We know this. So the question is, I put back to you and I put back to put to the audience that, that we have, how and to what extent have people um, figured out how to shield the creativity, uh, problem solving, product making, energy and enthusiasm that people engage in, whether they're growing organic rice in Brazil that is of such huge quantities that it's going all kinds of places or making a dozen motorbikes in Marrakesh or producing oxygen in Haryana or Kerala, um, how, what are, what are the uh, methods at, through which people protect these activities from becoming commodified by capitalism? And that, to me, is just like straight up political work. And to, to me, I guess I'll say further, as um, inspired as I am to see work that I uh, understand to be abolitionist happening all over the world also makes me worry that there aren't um, something that would be the equivalent of parties to protect that work, right? Something that would be the equivalent of uh, some kind of formal, institutional, reproducible structure to protect the work. The MST has that. I mean, they're not a party that runs uh, candidates for um, elected office, but they do all of the other stuff that a party would do. So that is something that is uh, hugely needed. Um, we can also think about the role that um, extraction plays in everything that we do. That um, the fact is that the machines that we are all using today to be able to have this incredible and precious um, conversation together have in them pieces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Bolivia, Chile, uh, labor power transferred into them probably in East Asia, Southeast Asia, sand, 
uh, that was uh, extracted from shorelines in many parts of the world and transported in those big ships, like the one that got stuck in the Suez Canal, that come around to for making glass. Like all of this um, activity, again, gives us some notion of what the possible political work might be on the ground. So I'm gonna use a word that's a little old fashioned and I'm not really sure where to go with it, but there certainly has been a huge struggle in places like Chile and Bolivia and the DRC and elsewhere over what should happen with the mineral wealth, with the raw materials, that are taken out of the ground? And should the control of those um, uh, goods, even before they become commodities, be determined by the people who live above the ground, as well as the people who do the work, wherever they live? And this, of course, is the struggle that mine workers are engaged in all over the planet. And they're working. Right? They haven't been replaced by machines. Some have, many haven't. This is the work that um, the new Chile government that's about to write a new constitution is confronted with. The biggest copper mine on the planet is in Chile, right? In Chile. Um, so there is some kind of residual sense. Now I'm finally getting to that word I promised I'd use. Residual sense of a kind of residual nationalism, like resource nationalism. You know, we, whose territory this is, ought to be able to decide kind of view of uh, what might be uh, considered by some reactionary, by others revolutionary. And the question is, how and to what extent can the people who sit on these resources that make possible the kind of connections that we are so eager to um, uh, encourage and help flourish, um, how can they, uh, which is to say, in a strict moment of solidarity, how can we determine the use of those things? And this gets us back to the question of um, automation being on the one hand, apparently so dire because it replaces human labor, but on the other hand, kind of promising because we could have more time to paint paintings and write books and make music and calm the misery of environmental degradation. One that's so powerful. Uh, I want to toss ahead. Uh, you mentioned having something about the state and just wanted to uh, real quick uh, take that route of, you know, the language of organized abandonment, abandonment, organized violence has been used to discuss this anti-state state concept. And so just want to take a little bit of time uh, to elaborate on that, and also in that elaboration, what do what should we see the function of the responsibility of the state, particularly for 
movement spaces and radical spaces and people that are interested in these revolutionary ideas. I want to shout out also the Chicago Torture Justice Center, which I work with, that is always wrestling with this question in a very material way uh, with survivors of police torture and coming out of the only reparations ordinance um, and center of domestic torture in the United States. So shout out to all my CTJC fam. Uh, and so we're always thinking about this relationship to the state, what that responsibility looks like as we are working with the survivors of this organized violence. Um, and so for you, what is that function and responsibility of the anti-state state or the state that we need to build? Okay. Another good question. These are all good questions. Um, the anti-state state is a concept um, that I developed having spent an awful long time uh, back in the 90s when Jerry and I saw a lot of each other, um, trying to understand how it was possible that two things were happening that should not have been able to happen together. On the one hand, people were elected, you know, ran for state office and were elected to state office, whatever level, you know, local, state, state, federal, saying, we're going to end the state as we know it. We're against it. We're going to, it's just going to go away. We're going to dissolve it. It will be gone. So that was happening. And then, because I'm a nerd, I looked at budgets and the budgets were going boom, 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 boom. I thought, well, what is this? What is this? What is this? So the anti-state state was the best way I could summarize my um, understanding of what was going on, which was that all different kinds of people from both of the main you know, capitalist political parties, as well as many others, um, uh, swore that uh, the problems that people were experiencing in their lives were created by something called the government. So if the government got out of their lives, their lives would magically get better. But then having been elected or appointed, many of them were appointed to you know, jobs like the head of this or the chief of that, having been elected or appointed, then what they had was this little bit of a legitimation crisis. It's like, well, um, I can't really preside over undoing my entire base of power, can I? And still have power, will I? So um, there was an enormous and protracted effort on the part of all different kinds of people to legitimate the growing uh, complex institutions that they claimed they were going to undo by beefing up in almost every instance some version of organized violence, which is to say police work, police or military work, while at the same time, in a very organized way, helping capital to abandon all the people who once upon a time might have depended uh, directly or indirectly 
on the lives and livelihoods produced by you know, factory work and so on and so forth, by union protected labor. So all of these things happen at once. And if I were to show you a slide uh, at all right now, the one I would show is that the, a slide that, that, that demonstrates that US workers have, contrary to slander, been remarkably productive forever, right? Forever. While their rate of unionization has taken a dive from its all time high in the 1950s. And as the rate of unionization has gone down and productivity has gone up, not surprisingly, can you see this gap between my arms? All right, profits are up here and wages are down here. So drop in unions, rise in productivity, drop in share of value made. Now we've already dismissed capitalism as the um, mode through which we can save ourselves, but it's yet another indication of exactly how thoroughly the abandonment of workers and their community, households and their communities um, by capital flight and the abandonment of workers, households and communities by the retrenchment of the always weak and always uh, unevenly available welfare state left people in the lurch and the forces of organized violence filled that gap. So my favorite example of this is that the US Department of Education has its own SWAT team. So we know cops in schools and many people are working to get cops out of schools. USED has its own SWAT team. Um, I can go example after example after example where you know policing practices have uh, been welded into the work of people like me, whose day job it is. I'm a public employee, and I'm supposed to teach, and I'm also supposed to you know, scrutinize people and you know do all these trainings that tell me how to be a better cop. In, in, in my place of work. And I wanna say something too about uh, militarism. So the forces of organized violence are not only police, but also obviously the military. And the militarism uh, that the US and its uh, many, many, many uh, partners uh, engage in around the planet uh, is a combination of endless wars with frontline soldiers there and proxy wars, which is to say wars in which the fighters are not U.S. citizens or permanent residents in U.S. uniforms, but still are, are, are involved in perpetual warfare on behalf of the more powerful um, nation states or imperial states on the planet. And as a result of this combination of conflict 
and environmental harm that militaries produce because their carbon footprint is enormous and therefore they are one of the causes of climate change. A result of conflict and environmental harm that militaries produce means that there is an ever greater number of long distance migrants in search of a place to be calm and have the kinds of things that we've been talking about. The ability to have a life that includes safety, security, and beauty. Um, so the U United Kingdom and the United States both have uh, developed policies in which one of their, I guess, spying um, uh, practices is to figure out where uh, large numbers of climate refugees might be moving from and where what direction they're moving in in order to interrupt them. And as I said, as I mentioned, um, the many of the wars that the US has been fighting have been proxy wars. Um, and this proxying of, which is to say having a stand-in work on behalf of the US uh, has extended as well to um, long distance migrant detention centers. And these centers, there are some in the United States that people are extremely uh, distressed about and along the border, we've heard a lot about, uh, and rightly so, but there are many, 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 many detention centers that are all outside of US territory. So in Mexico, in Central America, in Libya, and, and to the south of Libya, in Turkey, um, you name it, that these, these uh, detention centers have uh, become the places, on that island off, off Australia as well, have become places where the US and other wealthy countries, wealthy capitalist countries, you know, push people, uh, migrants, uh, into uh, inaction so that they, these uh, people in their households and communities cannot uh, find relief from conflict, from economic privation, and from climate change. Um, so this, the disorder today that I thought we might talk about if we have time, but if not, another time, the disorder today that's in U.S. cities, that's in many cities, in cities in South Africa uh, and elsewhere, was again, like these other things that I've been talking about, entirely predictable, entirely predictable. It's like abandon people and then be surprised that people refuse it. And then be surprised that so many people at a loss for how to express themselves, find, modeled by the state, violence, the most effective way, mode of speech, like modeled by the state, modeled by the state, modeled by the state, the most effective form of speech. So while 
a lot of the um, uproar in the newspapers and on television and with the chief of police from Chicago rushing to DC and, and elsewhere um, uh, purports to be telling us uh, in the US context that crime is worse than it's ever been before because of some huge leap. Look at the numbers. The numbers are quite different, even though there are these terrible things happening, which again, I will say were entirely predictable. Entirely. Um, so there are two things going on. One, people on the ground figuring out, as happened in the early 90s, Jerry was there in, in South Central LA, where gangsters figured out, oh, if we make peace, things are going to be different around here. And they did. And then, and this is really tied to so many of the things that we've been talking about today, in in Los Angeles, after uh, many of the street organizations came together and sat down in an independent mosque and wrote a peace treaty out and agreed to it, and things which had been getting better anyway got a lot better. Then there was this like little spike. Murder rate suddenly went up briefly. And the main reason for that, which is to say the main reason people were dying suddenly again, was that the city and county had closed the trauma center in South Central Los Angeles, and therefore a wound, which I am not excusing, a wound was more likely to take somebody's life than before. Now, if we look at what has happened with hospitals around the United States, the fact that there are vast areas of the rural United States where there are no hospitals whatsoever, no hospitals whatsoever anymore, uh, indeed, vast areas of the rural United States where, in some cases, communities thought that if they um, approved a prison in their midst, they could save their hospital because they thought, well, surely if they put a prison here, they're not going to let the prisoners die and therefore we'll be able to keep our hospital. They were wrong, right? That, that this kind of organized abandonment that we can see in so many different aspects of everyday life um, afflicts us now with the disorder that we confront today. The other thing I, I think we're reading about the uptick in violence in this country, um, it's also uh, clear that the violence is being generated by the um, you know capitalist class, the state that needs the violence to undo the work of the class that has been you know calling for end to the the violence against us. And it's it, now more than ever we we really need organize organization. I think I was really glad you brought up some kind of an organization that can bring people together and develop the consciousness that it's not just one struggle and we're going to, you know, pull out of this together. Um, anyway, though, Ruthie, you've talked about racial capitalism as all capitalism. You've talked about the concept of race as vulnerability to premature death. Absolutely. Can you explain these concepts and why they're so important to the liberation of all society? Be happy to. Uh, 
again, I, I like to share with people how I got to thinking the way that I got to think just to kind of demystify. So that people don't think, oh, she sits in a room at a desk with a lot of books and then has a thought and then it's done. So um, in, in the late 1990s, uh, right before Bill Clinton left office uh, as president of the United States, um, so it might've even been the year 2000, he uh, commuted the sentences of several women who had been serving very long terms on crack cocaine charges. And everybody who's listening knows that in under federal law, um, the crack cocaine convictions were like way, 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 way longer than cocaine, powder cocaine convictions. And surprise, surprise, the demographics of the people convicted under these two different things was quite different. Um, and so a group of us, uh, Deborah Peterson Small and Angela White Davis and Kimba Smith, who was one of the people whose sentences, sentence was commuted, and um, another person whose sentence was commuted, I think, as I recall, her name was Dorothy Gaines. We you know, hit the road to talk to people about this um, problem so that they could speak from their experience of having been among the few who got out, so many still suffering inside, and to talk in general about the criminalization of um, working people, working and workless people. And in preparation for that event, uh, and I'll tell you that in, in this particular event, everybody who participated was black. We were not in the least under the impression that only black people suffered from these um, problems, but, but I will tell you that. Uh, I was thinking a lot about the various things I had learned from so many people who had spent time locked up. So many, 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 many people. So at the time I'd been working with Dorsey, Dorsey Nunn for a while, one of the follow, founders of All of Us Are None. Uh, I'd been working with uh, just so many people. And it became clear to me that uh, on top of, or in addition to everything else that uh, putting a human in cages does to that human, their households and communities, it certainly shortens their lives. And then I thought, well, maybe I should think more uh, expansively about how we can understand racism. And instead of thinking that racism is something that group A does to group B, Rather, that racism is the result of a whole series of relationships, institutions, and outcomes. And then, as I continued thinking, I was reminded of an article I read in some journal, like of medical sociology or something, by a couple of professors who taught at the school where I got my PhD. They weren't my direct teachers, but I read their work. Mike Greenberg and Donna Schneider. And the article was called, 
Violence in American cities. Young black men is the answer, but what was the question? And it was like, whoa, isn't that a good title? What was the question? And the first sentence of that article is you find the answers to the questions you asked. So I thought, well, maybe I could produce, you know, really think hard about and make what for me would be a definition of racism that might compel people to ask different questions from the obvious ones of, oh, these people do it to those people, that it's somehow a matter of bad attitude or intent but as against structures and so forth. So I wrote um, this thing, which is such a mouthful, but group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. That's what racism is. It's state-sponsored or extra-legal production an exploitation of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. So some guy was like really, really keen to prove me wrong and stupid, jumped on me at a conference one day and said, well, that's ridiculous because, you know, the Irish people who built the Erie Canal died more prematurely than people who were enslaved in the South. And I said, you just proved my point. Like quite the opposite of you taking me down you thought I meant racism meant black people because I'm black as against I meant racism meant group differentiated vulnerability to premature death, which is what happened to the Irish people who built the Doug Erie Canal. So, so it's racism that that definition wishes to put into people's consciousnesses so that it's possible to think of all of these things like who dug the Erie Canal and what is happening with the opioid crisis in, in rural America and so on and so forth. And to understand with um, uh, my mentor, the late Cedric Robinson, how racial thinking underlies the entire logic of capitalism, period. Right? Racial thinking underlies the entire logic of capitalism, period. Again, not because Black people suddenly came into the picture, but rather, as Robinson argues in his book, because of how in the context of capitalism as it arose in, Eng in England and in the uh, colonial relation that England had with Ireland and so forth, that the people who became the uh, owners and those who had effective control over capital saw the people who worked for them, who were local, all of whose descendants might be white today, saw them in racial terms, whether it was the Welsh coal miners or the certain peasants from the English countryside or Irish people, so forth. Am I saying they weren't white? I'm saying the distinctions were racial. This is the important thing. Again, even if all of their descendants are white today. Robinson got this idea or was inspired to think about racial capitalism by his uh, interactions with um, uh, anti-apartheid trade union organizers in South Africa and the frontline states. Right? Um, so Kosato and so forth, who had uh, 
come up with a phrase of their own, which we don't have time maybe to go into now, but I'd love to talk about in another conversation. And theirs was racial Fordism. And at a time when uh, a certain kind of industrialized, industrializing development that would enable the people who made the product to afford to buy the product, that's what Fordism is, was as, as the um, uh, workers, the comrades in South Africa saw was a racial system too, which it was for Ford as well. He remember, he was a great admirer of Hitler. So why all this? It's because capitalism requires inequality. It does, it requires it, it requires it. Capitalism requires inequality and race, racism enshrines inequality. Capitalism absolutely requires it. It requires it because there has to be an equal power in relation to property. Because if there isn't, it means that the workers can go to work and make their widgets or make their cars or make their agricultural products or make whatever and then take it home. Right? So there has to be a system of inequality. I didn't say poverty, I said inequality. There has to be a system of inequality in place that enables some people to reap the benefit, which is to say, to appropriate privately the socially produced wealth. And this is where, to go back to the 19th century, that nappy headed philosopher Karl Marx took a look and said, man. If we could just like get rid of that inequality and make the self-earned property of the worker be the center of life, life would be different, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Um, so racism, group differentiated vulnerability to premature death, how does it happen? Exposure to toxins, various deprivations, the kind of research that's done to solve uh, health, some health problems, but not others, um, and so forth. And I had something, a kind of big thing I wanted to end on, if I could, that has to do with land and water. Do we have time? We have probably maybe 15 more minutes in the program, so a few more minutes, and then we'll, we'll go. Okay. Like I said, I tend to be long when All right. So I think maybe we could um, consider how um, internationalism is essential to our struggle. And an abolitionist international is something that I and others have been trying very hard to help develop over time and space. Talking, planning, plotting, connecting, sorting, all of these things uh, over time. And in some ways, the international is here, but what we make of it will shape the future in the now as people keep doing what we do. And just to pick up um, the point that you made, uh, Jerry, about organization, everything it's worth doing, as Mariam Kaba says, it's worth, is only worth doing if we can do it with other people. 
And by extension, my entire experience of political life, um, well into my seven, through my 71st year, into my 72nd year, is that if you organize with people who are already organized, things happen that don't happen when you're not. So the environmental justice work that attached to uh, anti-prison work, the long distance migrant work attached to nursing and, and mine workers and so on and so forth is all are all examples of working with people who are already organized, who themselves are very often struggling to democratize, to radicalize the organizations in which they find themselves. I mean, there are plenty of um, criticisms that people make, and rightly so, about large-scale trade unions. That doesn't mean, in my view, that they should be, you know, turned into scorched earth and people start all over again. That those two are institutional structures that can um, be turned to different use. So I want to just end uh, here a couple more minutes to talk about two big things, which are Amazon and Amazon. So on the one hand, there's Amazon, the you know, my friend Paul Gilroy calls the cornucopia of capitalism. Amazon that links so much of the world together. And I've talked about other big tech companies, so it's not the only one, but it's one that we can think about together, especially because the guy who uh, wealth hit $188 billion the other day, just burned a whole lot of money to pretend to go to outer space when millions of people in the United States are about to become homeless when the eviction moratorium ends, right? This is, this is where we are. Now, some people, including my friends there in Los Angeles at the Economic Roundtable, are uh, in concert with others, are trying to make the argument that Amazon should be a public utility. That it, like water and electricity and all these other things that when they're interrupted by capitalist neglect or appropriation, turn out to be deadly and deathly, whether we look at the Paradise Fire in Northern California, what happened in uh, Texas during the freeze, and so forth. These public utilities should actually be public, public, public. This is a step toward um, ending the hegemony of private property. So that's what Amazon should be. And if we look at how Amazon is stretched around the world and how a good deal of Amazon, even though um, the company has enormous market power and can direct firms to make goods to its specifications. It also organizes all kinds of little producers, all kinds of independent producers, because that's the way they can get their products to market. So we see, as we see with agribusiness, the fact that on the ground, there's a multitude of people and the multitude, um, the, the many, if you will, are where uh, organizing should focus and where perhaps we can find hope. So I want to say one last thing about Amazon, which is the other Amazon, the lungs of the planet, the Amazon, that huge tropical forest in Brazil, which until very recently 
has been what we call a carbon sink. That is to say, it brings the carbon in to the forest and enables oxygen, therefore, to circle the earth. Because of the expropriation, which is to say the ongoing theft of lands, both from indigenous people and from other smallholders, whether uh, indigenous, Afro-descended or not, uh, because their land has been taken from them in order to produce, for example, beef for McDonald's or um, uh, uh, agricultural products to go into biofuels, right? Everybody will think they're all ethical using biofuels. The, the Amazon has been burned uh, extensively. And as a result of the actual burning and the shrinkage of the forest, it is becoming for the first time in the history of, of the, this period of the planet's geologic history to becoming a carbon source instead of a carbon sink. There's one other kind of a, an auxiliary loan on the planet, which is a forest that's mostly in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where, as you'll remember, cobalt and copper for our electronic doodads comes from as well. So protecting these forests and thinking about Amazon, which should be a public utility, and Amazon, which is the kind of the infrastructure for the maintenance of life on this planet, are things that we can do together and as I hope I've showed in, in my answers to the questions, there's always something specific that the huge and general and grand schemes that I've presented are always huge and general and grand schemes that have a very concrete basis on which people can act today, whether it's supporting union organization, supporting the MST, don't think that not using plastic straws is going to fix things. We have to organize. We can't just withdraw. Okay. Ruthie, thank you so much. You've given us a course in everything today. Not only, <laughs> not only abolish everything, change everything, but we have a full-on international course on what's happening, and it's exciting to hear about it. Um, we're going to close, um, but I, I and I really want you to know thank you. 